Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman and part of his presentation, The Beginning of the Good News, a study on the Gospel of Mark, part of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is titled, A New Teaching, Part 2, recorded in March 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman. Jesus displays that he possesses authority to teach, and as he's teaching, his teaching is interrupted. We're told that there is a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and the unclean spirit, speaking through the man, calls Jesus out. He says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Jesus doesn't answer him, but he shuts the spirit up. He says, be silent and come out of him. He subjugates the spirit, literally. And the spirit leaves the man. The man is freed of this spirit. And everyone is amazed again because they say this is a new teaching. Because it's a teaching that, is, that goes along with this authority. Jesus displays his authority in words, but he also displays his power in actions by engaging in combat, in warfare, with this opposing force. Remember, the kingdom of God is about warfare. So here is an opponent, an opponent who presumes, rhetorically, that Jesus has come to fight and Jesus indeed fights him. It's a pretty quick fight. You know, it's not long and drawn out. Jesus simply commands him and he's silent. The verb in Greek that is used to describe this is normally translated rebuke, which is unfortunate because it has the sense of, you know, Jesus as sort of, you know, chiding him, saying, you know, you, you, you unclean spirit, get out of him. You know, that's not what he's saying. The verb epitimao means to subjugate, to subjugate an enemy. So Jesus here is the warrior um, who subjugates the enemy who is, uh, who is infesting this Israelite. Now we have to step back for a moment. We're going to get to this whole thing about how this connects with, with uh, the end of this section. But let's just, let's just dwell on this story for a bit. Um, we, have, we have a problem with unclean spirits because we don't we don't know what unclean spirits are anymore. When you think of unclean spirits or demons, as they're also called, you probably think of the exorcist, you know, the movie. You think, you think of horror movies, right? Or you think of bizarre stories that come out in, you know, Star Magazine or something like this, or about, you know, bizarre incidents that seem very marginal to our own experience. Well, I don't want to pass any judgment on any of that, but when we speak about unclean spirits or demons, we have to ask, well, what, what, would, Mark's, what would Mark understand when he's writing about this, when he says there's an unclean spirit or there's a demon? What would he mean by that? And how would his audience, a first century audience, how would they understand that term, unclean spirit or demon? Well, there's no explanation for unclean spirits or demons in the Bible. They're, they don't appear at all 
in most of the Old Testament, I, I, I have to say most because there's one book where they do appear in the book of Tobit. Um, but generally, there are no unclean spirits or demons in the way that, that we find them in the Gospels in the Old Testament. They're simply not there. Uh, nor is their existence ever explained uh, in, a, in a long and drawn out way that, uh, for us outsiders to understand what, what, what they're about. So both the authors of the New Testament and the hearers, they already understand what this term means, and so it doesn't need to be explained to them. In Judaism, in, in non-biblical Jewish literature of the time, um, there is an explanation for what these malevolent spiritual forces are. And you have to go back to the book of Genesis to, to find them. Uh, you go back to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. This is, the, this is right before the story of the flood, where God gets angry because human beings are, are spilling blood and creating violence and polluting his creation, not unlike what we do today. And uh, in Genesis 6, 1, uh, 1 to 4, there's a story which seems unrelated to this at first, but it's actually quite relevant. Uh, it says, at that time, uh, the sons of God looked upon the daughters of Adam. So divine beings looked upon mortal women and they desired them and so they mated with them and they bore hybrid offspring. They, they, they begat creatures that were neither human nor divine. Monsters, in other words. So these monstrous beings, which are either called the, uh, the Nephilim or the giants, um, very similar to Greek mythology, uh, the giants are... We're told in the Bible they are the they are the men of war. They are the great uh, they are the, the, they are the, the the great martial heroes. They're the people who make their business killing. Well, killing is why God seeks to eliminate humanity because violence is rife and it's overcoming His creation. So they they represent the essence of of what God has to save His creation from violence. And in later Jewish literature, contemporary with the New Testament. This story of the giants is expanded in which it is explained that the giants were destroyed in the flood along, along with the rest of humanity. Uh, but since the giants were neither human nor divine, they, uh, when they died, their spirits uh, remained within the world. They couldn't go back to heaven because... They weren't purely divine. They couldn't stay on earth in human bodies because they were, their bodies were destroyed. And so they are these malevolent forces that prey upon humanity because humanity has what they can't, bodies, life. That's why they possess people. So this is an explanation in Jewish literature for this phenomenon which we call unclean spirits and demons. Um, in, in this literature of the time, this is second or first centuries B.C. that we hear about this, way of thinking, uh, these unclean spirits, uh, there, is a, uh, there is an angel, uh, either called Satan or someone else, there's different names for him, but it's basically Satan. Uh, Satan asks God if God will lend him a tenth of these unclean spirits with which he can afflict and test humanity. And God permits him to do this until the time that I bring judgment down upon all wickedness in the world, says God. So there is a time limit to the time that Satan can use these 
these beings to afflict people. Um, well, what is the time limit? The time limit is when God declares his kingdom. When God's kingdom enters the world, when God's power is made effective in human experience, the time of the unclean spirits to torment people is at an end. So this is very foreign to our worldview. We don't think in these terms. We don't experience the world in terms, most of us probably don't experience our everyday existence as being threatened by malevolent spiritual forces. You know, as Catholics, we believe that they exist, but you know, how many people you know, uh, are possessed, have been possessed in this room by demons? No one? Okay, so we don't have a personal experience of what's being talked about. You know, however you want to spin this, it's a foreign experience, and that's why we need to focus on it. What is the very first act, demonstration of God's kingdom in the world? It is an exorcism. It's a combat between God's agent, his messenger, and these forces, and they are subjugated in battle. Have you come to destroy us? Yeah. That is what Jesus is here to do. He's here to destroy. Now, after he does this and, and, and everyone's happy with it, the word of what happens spreads and that attracts more people to him because he can teach with authority and he, 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 he uses acts of power to demonstrate that authority. Okay, so that's basically, well, and then after this, um, he goes to, Peter, to, to Peter's house, heals his mother-in-law of an illness, and then everyone brings their sick and possessed to Peter's doorstep so Jesus can heal them. That's, that's our first little segment here. Basically, chapter 1, verses 16 to 34. Okay, skip down to its corresponding section at the end here. Chapters 2, 23 to 3, 12. So it began uh, with this act in a synagogue on the Sabbath, an act of power, a demonstration of authority, a, a call to battle, as it were. And it ends um, with another act of power uh, on the Sabbath. And it actually has, um, has a couple stories that are part of this. So let's actually begin at the beginning in chapter 2, verse 23. This is a story in which Jesus runs afoul of another group who has appeared since the first story called the Pharisees. We heard about the scribes. We're going to hear about them again. The Pharisees are another group who appear, and they um, first they, they, they notice that Jesus behaves very differently than they do, and then uh, they begin to criticize the fact that Jesus allows his disciples to do things that the Pharisees don't allow themselves to do, uh, namely to... Uh, to gather grain on the Sabbath. What did God command Israel to do on the Sabbath? Rest. What does it mean to rest? Don't work. Don't work. What does it mean not to work? Do nothing. Do nothing? Well, you have to breathe. Okay. What, what does it mean to rest on the Sabbath? Well, there are some specifications in the Torah, in the Old Testament, that uh, specify things you're not supposed to do, but generally it's a matter of interpretation. What does resting mean? Um, and is walking through a grain field and plucking grain so that you don't have to cook your own food, is that working or is that the absence of work? Anyway, the Pharisees, who for some strange reason are hiding out in a grain field, you know, ready to pounce on them. <laughs> what are they doing out in a grain field on the Sabbath? Who knows? They're basically straw, they're straw targets. They're there to, uh, to be sort of, um, 
you know, uh, adversaries that pop up when necessary. Uh, the, the, the Pharisees criticize Jesus allowing his disciples to do this, and Jesus then um, uh, uh, counters them, counters them to say that uh, basically, um, you know, uh, the Sabbath is made for human beings, not human beings for the Sabbath. Uh, so human need trumps or, or defines uh, what is permissible on the Sabbath. And actually, that's something the Pharisees agreed with for the most part, so long as so, so much as we know. So Jesus makes this argument because he thinks they already agree with him on this. They simply dispute this particular interpretation. But I don't want to dwell on that. The, the way he ends his argument, the way Jesus ends his point, is to say the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man also is Lord of the Sabbath. Well, who is the Son of Man? The Son of Man is an, an Aramaic expression. Jesus spoke Aramaic. That simply means a human being. So it's just another way of saying human being. But the way Jesus uses this term in this story in Mark means something more than, he's not just saying, I'm just a human being. Um, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. This is a character from the book of Daniel, one of the books of the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 is a vision, uh, sorry, it's an apocalyptic vision of world history. Uh, and it's a history defined by violence, violence perpetrated against God's people by the mighty warlike empires of the, of the time who are symbolized in this vision as monstrous beasts, perhaps like the giants that we were just talking about. So the, so the Babylonians, the Persians, the Medes, the Greeks, all these people who have dominated and oppressed the Jews, they are the source of violence and evil in the world. And each of them comes to the end of its time. So these empires don't last forever. Human history is a history of empire and the end of empire. How, does the empires, how do the empires collapse and end? They end when God judges them for, the, for their violence and replaces them with a new ruler. Not a monstrous creature, but a human figure who descends in this vision from the heavens to rule the world and everyone in it. This is the son of man, the one like a son of man. And Jesus identifies this figure with himself. So the vision is basically about the kingdom of God, how God's kingdom, how God's rule expressed through this human figure supplants, terminates uh, the rule of violence in the world by these other powers. Excuse me while I turn this off. So Jesus refers to himself to explain his authority to do what he does and say what he says on the basis of this vision from the Old Testament. He is the Son of Man. Now, after he does that, he ends up in a synagogue on the Sabbath, presumably the same Sabbath. He ends up in this Sabbath, on the, on, uh, in the Sabbath, on a synagogue, on, in a synagogue, on the Sabbath, right? Just like he began. The first act he performed was in a synagogue on the Sabbath, in the same town, by the way. And he performed an act of power. He displayed his authority. And now he's going to do it again. This time, it's not an unclean spirit. Uh, it is a man um, with a withered hand, a man with, with, with a, uh, a hand that is uh, diseased or afflicted somehow. And uh, it's said that 
those who uh, these Pharisees are watching him to see what he would do, to see if they could accuse him of, of working on the Sabbath. Um, Jesus heals the guy anyway, and immediately we're told the Pharisees and their friends, the Herodians, this is another group who appear out of nowhere, uh, the Herodians, we don't really know who they are, but presumably by their name, they are, they are affiliates or supporters of the current regime uh, who is led by a man named Herod. They get together and plot to destroy Jesus. Now, and after that, we have the scene of all the crowds gathering to Jesus, Jesus going out to the fishing boat and, becoming, and his disciples becoming fishers of men, drawing people to Jesus. Now, let's compare these two bookends. They both begin with fishers of men. They both involve Jesus performing an act of power or authority in a synagogue on the Sabbath. The first one leads the opponent to ask, have you come to destroy us? The second story leads Jesus' opponents to try to destroy him. See the, the, the little full circle here? There's a repetition of themes and motifs and even settings. Because we come full circle, we know that Mark has told us everything we need to know about Jesus and his authority. So if you will, this, these first three chapters are... We don't get a further, well, we get a further elaboration of the implications of Jesus' message. What does it mean that the kingdom of God has drawn near? It means that God is engaging in warfare with opposing forces who turn out to be unclean spirits. There's a supernatural component, but also all that afflicts human beings, uh, diseases, illness. Uh, Jesus heals people all over the place here. So it's the power to heal, the power to cast out demons. This demonstrates what the kingdom of God is. It's nothing about going to heaven. It's nothing about uh, some otherworldly spiritual, if we use the term spiritual to mean other than the whole human person, something divorced from our bodily existence. No, it's healing the body politic, if you will, healing the society, healing those members of the society who are afflicted bodily, either by these malevolent forces or by what we would call natural forces, natural causes, but there's not really a distinction between the two in Mark's gospel. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's healing. It's cleansing. And there are those who don't want it to happen, or at least not. There are those who will oppose it because they don't like the kind of authority that Jesus is claiming in the process. Now, let's, in, in the time we have left, we've really just focused on the bookends today, and you can sort of read the rest of this in, in more detail, but let's just go through, um, let's just go through the rest here. Let's look at the central story, what I call C, ABC. The central frame or panel of this picture uh, is a conflict that Jesus, it's the first time Jesus engages other human beings as opponents. And the people he opposes or who oppose him are none other than the scribes, the people who in the first story were mentioned as not being like Jesus in their understanding of authority. So just so the first story that we saw in the synagogue profiles Jesus as being not like the scribes. And then in the middle of this sequence of stories, we have a conflict between Jesus and the scribes. 
So the reference to the scribes at the beginning sets us up for this conflict story. What is this conflict story? Well, it involves healing. In this case, it's a paralyzed man. Jesus uh, prepares to heal him, and then he says, your, your sins are forgiven. So healing also involves forgiveness of sins. The scribes, who now appear for the first time, uh, ask themselves, how can this man do this? Only one person has the ability to forgive sins, namely God. How does Jesus respond? He says, well, which is easier for me to do, to heal him or to say his sins are forgiven? Well, probably the, the, the answer that Jesus expects is to say his sins are forgiven. That's easier. Your sins are forgiven. That was pretty easy. It's easy for you to say something, but can you back it up with an act of power to demonstrate that it is real? So Jesus says, so that you will know that the Son of Man, that's the first time he references himself as the Son of Man, has authority on earth to forgive sins, voila. So the conflict that Jesus' actions engender lead, force him in a sense, to claim and define the nature of his authority. The nature of his authority is, I am the son of man. Notice he didn't say, I'm God. Jesus isn't God in, in, in Mark's gospel. We don't have Trinitarian theology here. We have that, the beginnings of that in John's gospel. But here, Jesus is the human being whom God has commissioned to fulfill his will, to bring about his kingdom. And he defines himself as the son of man, this human figure who represents the opposite of the violent bestial empires that have ruled Israel throughout most of its history. That's how Mark presents Jesus and his authority. So the answer is, yes, there is someone besides God who has the authority to do this, the one whom God has given authority to do this. Read Daniel 7. So, this, so, so out of this sequence of stories, we get two things. We, we get, again, defined what the kingdom means in concrete, real terms, what it looks like, in people's lives. It defines the nature of Jesus' authority. Jesus is the son of man, the figure at the end of time who is going to bring about God's kingdom by replacing the existing kingdoms, by a new form of authority. And uh, then we have the story of the opposition to that, the demonic opposition, which is to be taken for granted, but also human opposition. The scribes are unwilling to accept Jesus' claim to act on God's behalf. The Pharisees have problems with the way he manages the interpretation of the commandments, such as the command to rest on the Sabbath. Then there's the Herodians. That's our third human group of opposition. Well, again, I, I mentioned who the Herodians are. They are the affiliates, the associates, the supporters of Herod, the ruler who Mark calls the king. Well, if you're proclaiming a new regime, the kingdom of God has drawn near, and you start to show your ability to back up those words with these acts of power, guess who's going to get kind of nervous? The existing king. The people who will oppose Jesus are those who have a vested interest in things staying the way they are. And we, don't, we haven't heard about Herod yet in the story, but of course we know the story from 
our general knowledge of the story of Jesus, Herod is the one who arrested and will execute John the Baptist. He arrested and killed the messenger. And we're going to hear about that story later on in the gospel. So the three things that these chapters do, they establish what the kingdom looks like, they define Jesus's authority, and they identify the opposition, supernatural as well as human. Those three things are accomplished in these chapters. And once, once he's done this, Mark isn't going to dwell so much on that anymore. He's already explained it to us. He's going to move on to something else. And the something else is this, just since we have a minute here, and then we'll have some Q&A and, and discussion. The last thing, or the thing that's going to happen next, if you look at our bird's eye view of the whole gospel, is Jesus is going to call 12 people to be with him. Now, we've already met some of these people. Peter, James, Andrew, John, all those folks. But he's going to call them to be something more than just followers at this point. He's going to call them uh, to do what he does, to act with the, the authority that he acts, to make the kingdom of God visible in the ways that he has made it visible. If you will, he appoints a cabinet. So he's already engendered the hostility of the existing rulers, and he now provokes them even further by by declaring, I'm establishing a new government with 12 apostles, right? Well, there's 12 tribes of Israel, aren't there? So he's, he's setting up a new government of Israel, right? It's a very provocative action, and it's going to elicit yet more opposition. And we'll see in the next block of material, which we look at next week, how Jesus trains the 12 to be these messengers, just like he is, to be these agents of God's power, like he is. He's going to train them by teaching them and by showing them. And that's what we're going to look at next. That's stage two of the kingdom of God. Stage one is Jesus makes himself known. Stage two, he gets other people to participate not just to respond to it, but to participate in what he does. And that, of course, leads into the church later on, because what is the church? The church is those people who have chosen to to become participants in bringing about the kingdom with Jesus as the body of Christ. We become participants in who Jesus is. Here we see the beginnings of that. So I think I'll stop there. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.